What's the world's fourth largest black market? Is it guns, drugs, organs? No, it's falcons. This is Billion Dollar Bird. I'm your host, Arden Hemenway, and today marks the beginning of our journey into the black market of falconry. According to the most trusted website on the internet, uh, Wikipedia, falconry is the hunting of wild animals in their natural state and habitat by means of a trained bird of prey. Originally, falconry was used as a method of bringing food to the table. 4,000 years later, and now it's used for sport, displays of wealth, and in some cases, even as a source of income. But to understand this worldwide phenomenon of domesticating birds of prey, we have to travel back to 2205 BC. Raptors were given as royal gifts in the Heian dynasty in China. And within 500 years, it had spread to Arabia and Persia, where wall hangings depicted men with birds of prey on their wrists. Falconry was actually so widespread that it even found a place among the Aztecs. And by 300 BC, falconry had finally reached popularity in Europe. At this point, it was more than sport or a way to gather food. And it was regarded as the pinnacle of culture, mainly by royals and noblemen. But still. (laughs) Now for the question of the day. Would you die for a falcon? Probably not. But during the reign of Edward VIII in the 1300s, it was declared that theft of a trained raptor was punishable by death, a fate which many actually suffered. But falconry was largely restricted to the noble classes, mostly due to the prerequisite commitment of time, money, and space. Nonetheless, it reached its highest level in England by 1600 AD, and was governed by rules that have gone unparalleled in the sport's history. No matter where you look, there wasn't regulations like these. Only a king could fly a gyre falcon. An earl had to fly a peregrine. A yeoman could have a goshawk. And the priests could only have a sparrow hawk. But what was really interesting is that servants were given a kestrel, which are actually really beautiful birds. But to me, it's just fascinating that servants got these falcons at all, that they were able to compete in the sport, because historically, it's been extremely exclusive. Who was actually doing falconry? Because we know it wasn't just the kings. Well, one of the most notable falconers of the time was no other than the bard himself, William Shakespeare. You hear about his plays, his wife, his sonnets, the one gold earring he wore in his right ear. But how often do you hear about how William Shakespeare was a falconer? To me, that's one of the most interesting things about him. But even with such popularity, as most things do, the sport soon began a rapid decline. The beginning of the French Revolution marked the loss of aristocracy and the growing popularity of firearms. However, It's on the rise again 
in a new place with new rules governed by new wealth. The Middle East is now home to falconry conventions that hold thousands of people every year, with state-of-the-art falcon hospitals in both Abu Dhabi and Dubai that are holding birds supposedly worth millions of dollars. So now, let's talk a little bit about the government's involvement. The UAE reportedly spends over $27 million in a single calendar year towards the protection and conservation of wild falcons, the most of any country in the world. There are two breeding farms in the Emirates, one in Qatar, and several in Saudi Arabia. Now, these are all things you definitely don't see the United States doing. The sport isn't new, just rejuvenated. With an influx of cash coated with gold sports cars and Gucci falcon hoods. Kidding. Kind of. But what's this doing to the birds? Their neurological makeup? How they live? What they look like? These are a series of questions that I needed answers to. So I did a little bit of research. The world's fastest falcon is owned by Hamdan Ahmed bin Mujrin, and he set the record in 2016. Here, in a video where he promotes Dubai, he speaks about his record-breaking feat. These days, they make competition of falcons. It's basically like the drag race. It's a quarter mile, 400 meter. You uh, release your falcon from point A to B. The fastest falcon cross this distance is the winner. I had a bird last year that got 15 seconds. This is the best time in falconry. 15 seconds? How is that even possible? Well, after a little digging, I found out that it's now common belief that thousands of years of selective breeding for design traits have altered the bird so much that they've almost become an entirely different species with unimaginable capabilities. There appears to be new colors, wingspans, and speeds that these previously wild animals would never have achieved on their own. They're bred to survive and breed in captivity, and run towards humans rather than away. But what's wrong with that? Well, it seems like a lot. I spoke with Vivian Maxim, owner of Born to be Wild, a raptor rehabilitation center in Rhode Island, about what she thinks of today's falconry. So, as the only woman falconer in all of Rhode Island, you've found a place in a pretty male-dominated sport. How did you find yourself involved in falconry in the first place? And I remember the moment distinctly. I, I sat on the edge of my bed and I said, okay, this is a, uh, a changing point for me. If I could do anything, what would I like to do? And falconry just was came right into the, into the front of my brain and... As I got steadily into raptor rehabilitation, I realized that combining the two would make me a better raptor rehabber. So I began the um, arduous process, a two-year process of becoming a licensed falconer here in Rhode Island. You have to apprentice for two years under a general or master falconer. And I was lucky enough to be taken under the wing of um, a local guy here, Jim. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, he, I was real lucky. Um, and he really laid down a solid foundation on the sport of falconry. But 
his passion was always hunting. Yeah. How many squirrels, how many rabbits could his bird catch? Mm-hmm. His, uh, and here on the East Coast, we don't really fly falcons. We fly red-tailed hawks oh, because, okay. because of the habitat. Yeah. Peregrine falcons need big, wide open space, big sky. So you're re- really talking about the distance they can cover, and you need to le- use telemetry on the oh. falcons just because of the, 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 how fast they are, how fast they can fly. Here on the East Coast, here in New England, um, it's a forested habitat, so a lot of falconers, they prefer the red-tailed hawk because the primary prey that we're after is gray squirrels mm-hmm. and rabbits, cottontail, eastern cottontail rabbits. It, it, it was a fascinating process because as you develop a bond with your hawk, um, it's a trust issue. Is what you're, you're trying to gain the bird's trust. Um, we don't work with um, imprinted birds. That's a, that's a completely so, different... I know that in working with you for a few years, we've spoken about imprinting and the impact that that has on the birds. Most people don't know what that is, and when they see falconry competitions, they're often mystified by the connection between the raptor and the falconer. Could you tell me a little bit about it? Well, the most important thing to, to remember about imprinting is it's irreversible. It well, happens- what is it? Well, it happens shortly after the bird hatches. Mm-hmm. And when a bird hatches from its egg, the first thing its eyes are supposed to focus on would be the mother. If it's not the mother, then it's going to focus on whatever that is, whether it's a foster parent of a similar species or a human. It's going to form a long-lasting and important social bond with that species. And then once it reaches sexual maturity, it will reject its own kind and seek the attention of the foster parent. So it's negative for the birds because they think humans are then their parents, correct? Yes, parents and then, and then potential mates. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, that's... so that make, makes them uh, non-releasable. Oh, okay. In the wild, they will reject their own species so that's... and then gravitate towards humans. So yeah, it can be very dangerous. As a raptor rehabilitator, I know you have a different perspective on birds of prey than a lot of other falconers. Could you speak to that and how the sport can sometimes be regarded negatively? Does that affect how you practice with your red-tailed hawks? Well, in the sport of falconry, uh, we try not to imprint. What we do is the birds become habituated. It's a completely different process. Habituation is where the bird becomes comfortable with the falconer, accepts the falconer, trusts the falconer, but yet down the road is completely releasable because it, it identifies with its own species. And I have known some falconers that will um, get a, a permit in other states to, to climb up a tree and take out nestling goshawks or nestling cooper's hawks, and then they're, they're at such a young age that will they, it will imprint on the falconer. But the, uh, the ones that breed, that legally breed falcons mm-hmm. in, in, in propagation um, situations, they prefer that because it just e- they're easier to handle. Yeah, I mean, and that's true, but it's at the risk of the bird being non-releasable. Exactly. In the midst of our amazing interview, I asked Vivian a question about the black market. And she admitted that she hadn't heard about it until I told her. 
But that's not uncommon for a falconer, even one as knowledgeable as her. Really, there's no one who knows it exists. But that's because it's not discussed. And I'm here to change that. The beauty of the sport is more than just the birds or the people doing it or even its international reach. It's that it's hidden yet amazing. And in speaking with Vivian, she reminded me why I began this project in the first place. Um, it's, it's considered an art form because of the attention to detail, the creativity, the patience that's required to practice falconry properly. Absolutely. Um, is really a, a form of art. And I, I like to think of it as uh, extreme bird watching. <laughs> when, I take, when I take my hawk out and let her loose, um, chasing rabbits in Matunic or squirrels in these forests and cemeteries around New England. It's watching what they do in the wild up close, and you get to actually be a part of it. Yeah. Really, and I will tell you, um, nine times out of ten, the prey win. Today marks only a beginning into the wild world of falcons. And while it might seem that nothing I've spoken about today has much to do with an expansive black market, Osama bin Laden, or chloroform, I promise you, there's more to come. Thank you so much for listening. Stay wild. Uh, really quickly, big thank you to PBS, the Falconry Center, and Wikipedia for letting me Google the history of falconry. Also, of course... Huge thank you to Vivian for letting me interview her. Our whole conversation is on the website, and I really, really recommend you listen to it. There's so much I didn't include that altered my perception about the sport and everything that comes with it. If you need photographic confirmation that there are indeed falconry paintings thousands of years old, want to see a falcon in a sports car or maybe an embarrassing photo of me at age 11 with a great horned owl, all that's on the website billiondollarbird.weebly.com yes .weebly.com because i refuse to spend money for my own domain anyway i digress if you want to follow the podcast on twitter it's at bdb podcast no promises that i'll actually tweet but i'm trying so i'll see you in a bit maybe a week maybe two who knows in the meantime, feel free to email me questions or potential interviewees at BillionDollarBirdPodcast at gmail.com. That's BillionDollarBirdPodcast at gmail.com.